the music of Johnny Hickman. Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our October 20th, 2011 edition of the show. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. We don't usually talk about food on this show, but rarely is discussion of food revelatory, revolutionary, transcendental, sublime, stirring, grounding, and charming. It is, though, all of these in a new book called Wild Flavors, One Chef's Transformative Year Cooking from Eva's Farm. We're going to be talking to author Dee Dee Emmons today. She has worked professionally with food for decades, opened and ran four successful restaurants, written two previous books, Vegetarian Planet and Entertaining for a Veggie Planet. Emmons additionally opened Haley House Bakery Cafe, a nonprofit cafe whose staff are people transitioning from homelessness and incarceration. Dee Dee Emmons, welcome to the show. Hi, Robert. It's great to have you. I really uh, meant that, what I said about the book. It was just, uh, I'm not... Uh, a person who is super knowledgeable ab- about food or who does a particularly lot of, of cooking, but um, I got really inspired by this and uh, the um, these unusual foods, which we're definitely going to go into that today, and, and just uh, flavors, wild flavors, as the title uh, says. And um, so can you go into, let's just start off with here, go into a little more detail about your uh, professional background and how that led you to Eva's farm? Sure. Well, I'm 48 years old, um, and I went to cooking school um, when I was 28 and realized, you know, a little bit before that, that I really wanted to be in restaurants and cooking. And um, and so um, maybe when I was... Who thirty three, thirty four? Um, I had been hearing about this woman who farms not far from Boston, where I live, and um, she she farms all these herbs and weeds and and greens that that high end chefs um, really riff off of. They really love to, you know, it really expands their their repertoire. And I I had heard all these stories about her. I'd read about her in our you know, the Boston Globe, the local papers. She's very, very articulate. So so I think maybe around age 35, I was opening a restaurant, my uh, first restaurant that, that I was really um, financially a part of, and um, it was vegetarian. And she sent me a fax, this, this farmer named Eva, and I looked at it, and in the margins it said, you know, congratulations, the best of luck, Didi, for love Eva or something like that, and I, I just about like I, it was as if I had just gotten an autograph from like you know Obama or something. I was just, <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe this woman knows my name and she knows I'm opening this place. And I called her up and I, I couldn't afford any of her herbs, 
But um, anyway, it occurs to me, I'm probably skipping way ahead. I'm not giving you my whole career like you asked me. (laughs) But anyway, I'm just... um, trying to just let you know how it, how it came to be that I got to know Eva. And um, so I had this conversation with her, and I um, she invited me down, even though I wasn't ready to buy any of her herbs. And I went down there, and I just was blown away. I, I you know, I was really just taken aback, and I didn't really know um, what it meant, but I knew that this place, there was something for me there that I really wanted to, it just, it just spoke, spoke to me. So I just kept going back for, for 10, 12 years. And you spent quite some time there. And the, so learning about these unusual plants and herbs and uh, how they can be used in, in food. And so what is it that, uh, changed about your relationship with food and food preparation after working with Eva, if you could sum that up in a couple of sentences. Yeah. Well, I mean, thankfully, writing the book helped me figure out, you know, writing the book proposal helped me figure out what what the place had done to me and my cooking um, because it was that I knew even after a couple of years that I wanted to write about it and after Four or five years, I knew I wanted to write a book about it. It just took a long time for that to happen. But, you know, what happens when you are spending time and you know how to cook pretty well, you're spending time at an herb farm where there are over 200 wild and cultivated herbs, um, you find that your cooking just immediately it just catapults itself into another realm and part of that is that you become and and also part of it is what's available at this farm we're not going to the supermarket we're really just using what's there and so i'm not using butter i'm not using cream not using a lot of cheese not using a lot of processed foods i mean really nothing that's not local um she doesn't go to the supermarket Everything she buys is bartered. Um, and so, yes, my, my cooking is all of a sudden super flavorful. But, you know, using herbs, there's a lot of ways to use them. So you can use them raw and you can make them into paste and you can make infusions and you can add them to soups and stews. And so it, you know, it's just, it's like a candy shop, you know, for me. Um, for anybody that loves food. And so that's... So, so I think I've answered your question. It's a whole lot healthier and a whole lot better tasting, but part of that is that we're eating local food beyond herbs too. So, yeah, and it's just it, reading the book. It comes off to me as like this this adventure. And could you, you know, we're on the radio, but uh, can you give us a maybe a, a sort of somewhat of a visual dis- description of Eva's farm? Well, you know, I really like to invite all of your listeners and use the farm because you can't really uh, explain it. Um, it's, But it is um, the most beautiful farm I've ever seen, and usually um, that's what people say. Um, and um, I, I think that um, what's so unusual about her farm is that she um, – she grows herbs, and herbs are very, very intense, and they're they're very flavorful. So you don't need to grow rows and rows of them usually. So, except for the really popular ones. So, by and large, and and also the other thing is that she allows for the seeds to to fly and to 
and to create another plant, like mm. volunteer, we call them volunteers. Yeah. So, so haphazardly, there are probably 240 bronze fennel plants strewn throughout her farm that have just landed there because they've been, they've been blown, the seeds have been blown um, away. Other plants, the birds will, you know, take uh, the seed and they'll digest it and, and it will come out the other end. <laughs> and, um, and so, so she lets that happen. She really does not try to control um, her garden. She, she really enjoys all these mistakes. So every two or three feet, there's another plant. There's another huge aroma to take in. And she has eight greenhouses, but mostly it's open land. It's a small farm. It's two and a half acres. It doesn't need to be big because, again, she's not growing these big plants like cabbage or kale, although she does grow some kale. But it's... It's really um, these these very intense plants that most chefs only get four or eight ounces of of you know say lemon verbena or so. Also, she grows a lot of flowers for restaurant um, for front of the house use, and um, so it's just you know I mean and then there's just the hummingbirds and the, the bumblebees. I mean, there's so many bugs. It's so organic. Um, there's so much to to get if you are a bug. I mean, there's so much to eat there. It's like a store 24. It's just, you know, constant feeding on the pollen and um, and the birds and uh, the hawks. I mean, it's just um, it's a beautiful part of the world. It's, it's New England, and she's right on the water, pretty much, pretty much right on the water. So um, it's a very um, uh, temperate climate. doesn't really... Doesn't it go really cold or really hot at any time of the year? Um, so did I explain it well enough? Yeah, I don't know. No, I mean, no, it could go I, on and on. Now um, I want to get on a plane and uh, and be there. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happens is you know, we invite people down. They come down for for the evening and they spend the night on the horsehair bed or you know some place that we you know that we can um, we can put them up and and they have dinner and there's there's eight of us or 10 of us or 16 of us eating dinner and her kitchen is like a tiny little ship galley and there can be four of us in there everybody's helping out and it's you know and I ask Eva in this little video that we did to promote the book I said Eva is this a is this a yeah is this a communal kitchen is that is this what you think this uh, is a communal kitchen and she said no i think it's a shared kitchen <laughs> but, but whatever it is there's a communal aspect to it and then all the neighbors come come in for dinner all the time so wow yeah it's a, it sounds fascinating and it sounds like there is is this weird in-between place where there is as far as the farm itself uh, of what's being grown that there's there's some order, but there's some randomness as well, and it's just this nice sort of in-between <laughs> place. Is that right? Right. I mean, she has a neighbor who is an ornithologist at Cornell, and he's very orderly. And I think it can sometimes drives him crazy that her garden is managed the way it is because it's not really tightly managed. They don't know exactly how many pea greens they're going to get every summer. They don't know exactly how much African basil or, you know, it's, so it's, it's, that's exactly what it is. And I think I appreciate it because that's sort of how I run restaurants. I like to be a little bit loose. Uh, I like, I think that creativity is really, more creativity can happen that way and when there are leftovers or whatever. So I think that she takes it to, uh, you know, an even larger level, um, (laughs) 
and I talk about that in my sidebars, about how she you know, salvages for food and um, she can um, she can eat anything. Um, nothing goes to waste, and so she she loves when there's any any kind of um, challenge in terms of um, something that's slightly disorganized. She can always. She once said um, in a newspaper article I read there was an asparagus patch that was no longer producing. And the reporter asked her, well, then why why do you keep it here? And she said, oh, it's like an old horse that you don't <laughs> want to go off to pasture. You just want to keep it here because you love it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if that's not, that's not verbatim what she said, but it's just she she just, yeah, she's she is a very eccentric woman. And, um, yeah. yeah. But also brilliant, really. You know, she she's very, very loved by the Boston community. So, yeah, it sounds like there is just this great depth of wisdom, but these these little eccentricities mixed in with it that make it uh, charming and sometimes challenging. And yeah, um, this is out the rabbit hole. KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson speaking today with Dee Dee Emmons, and uh, we're talking about her book, Wild Flavors, One Chef's Transformative Year Cooking from Eva's Farm. And uh, it also says on the cover of the book, 46 plants, 150 recipes, four seasons. So we can go into that a little more as we go along here. Uh, Dee Dee, uh, Wild Flavors is, among other things, a recipe book, but we're dealing with some unusual plants. Uh, Some are just odd ones that most of us have heard of but don't eat too often such as parsnips and rutabagas and others are ones most of us have never even heard of let alone tried Uh, how is it that some foods stay in that kind of oddball category and others even though nutritious and or tasty remain just in this mostly unknown category well um i think that you know Eva could probably answer this question even better because she's she's so sort of opposed to the food system as it stands, um, and she kind of circumvents the food system by bartering and by growing her own. Um, unfortunately, the food system, the way that it's set up, um, it it um, and with herbs especially, it, it doesn't allow for um, a large range of herbs. It's hard for any supermarket to to, to have that kind of um, inventory, especially with herbs, because they're so thin-skinned, they will not um, they don't they, they perish so quickly. So so they've kind of it, it's really hard. It's like um, you know it's sort of like Brad Pitt maybe, and um, you know. Um, I'm trying to think of like another Jennifer Jennifer Aniston. You know, it's really hard to replace these big superstars like parsley and cilantro. I mean, it's hard for for another one to get introduced into the food system. And I don't even know if I fully understand why, but it's really difficult. So, certain supermarkets will be um, more open to taking a more unusual herb, but. Um, the truth is you have to grow them yourself, um, and in order to learn about them, you really either have to go to a restaurant and go, oh, my God, what am I tasting? This is amazing, and then do your own research, you know, or buy a book like this. I mean, the only reason I know about so many of these unusual flavors, and most of them are herbs, but some of them are foraged foods like um, 
juniper berry, um, autumn olives, um, which um, I think you guys in California have the Russian olive, um, mm-hmm. which is a, a berry, which is a really, really sweet and healthy berry. But even weeds um, like chickweed that's in almost everybody's garden or claytonia or goosefoot, these are in everybody's front, you know, front lawns. I would never have known about these herbs had it not been for for stumbling upon Eva's garden and really spending a lot of time there. This is this is a farm that has developed over forty five years, and chefs have have requested and have you know maintained the herbs that really are the most flavorful, that are the most that will really kind of transform their food the most, and so. I lucked out just because I, I hit it off with this woman and I ended up spending a lot of time um, cooking at her at her garden. So I got to really learn all that she grows. And, and I, I included 46 in the book, but really there's over 200 that she grows. I had to just pick my favorites. <laughs> and you mentioned a few of those just a moment ago. Um, so what are a couple of the weirder plants that you discovered that were really delightfully surprising to you. Yeah. Well, of course, the foraged ones are, are amazing because you can really just anywhere where I live in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, I can find um, a plant like knotweed, um, Japanese knotweed. It's it's um, it's a strange plant. It sort of turns into wood, bamboo kind of shape, uh, texture after it's two or three months old, but when it's young, it tastes like rhubarb. Um, so that's kind of a neat um, a neat flavor, which we turn into a sorbet that's phenomenal. Oh, another one that I love that's wild is rose. Rosa, uh, Rosa bragusa is the Latin name, and it's just wild rose or beach rose, and it's I don't. I don't know if it's along the coast of California, but I can imagine it is. It's something people can look up. But this, these rose petals are so fragrant and flavorful. We pick them like by the um, um, by the pillowcase full, and so we spend a couple of hours picking them, and then we freeze them, toss them in lemon juice, and freeze them, and then throw them into our um, our sorbets, like in the food processor. We'll will grind it into the sorbet. So it's it's like fresh rose water, but it it's so over the top, it's so delicious. Like it you never think that rose would be such a uh, be such a um, popular flavor, but whenever I serve rose sorbet, rose strawberry sorbet, rose raspberry, you know, it's just people are dumbstruck. They're so you know, they're so happy. So um, yeah, another that... unusual one is spruce shoots, the, the shoots of a spruce tree. Um, that's a fabulous flavor, um, and it's edible. You, you see it all around you. So um, I gave you the foraged ones. There's a lot of cultivated ones, probably one of the weirder cultivated ones. Most of them started out as wild, of course, um, but uh, calamint is something that's very unusual. Um, you really only see it in Italy and um, and at Eva's, but yet it's this cross between oregano and mint to kind of create this, like, this, this super menthol mintiness that you're, like, thinking that Altoids should really capture this and make <laughs> a really fabulous Altoid, you know, out of it. But it can be used for an ice cream, and it can be used for, you know, a venison stew. Um, so it's a really versatile herb that you just can't believe you've never heard of before. 
Well, you really have my uh, mouth watering. <laughs> I was like, I have got to try these things, and uh, we'll uh, see what we can uh, scrounge up out here in uh, Southern California and maybe uh, put some of these together. And, and the recipes are in your book. There's uh, 150 recipes with uh, many of these really um, unusual plants in so those of you who do like to cook do like to experiment you will enjoy uh, looking these up again the book is wild flavors one chef's transformative year cooking from eva's farm our uh, guest today dd emmons so uh, how does uh, eva d- discover the- these strange foods i mean is it a variety of things does she do a lot of reading is it adventuresome tasting out in the wild uh, passed on knowledge from other people is it all yeah. of these kinds of things? Well, I mean, first I'd like to say, too, that, I mean, just talking to, to you all in California, to you know, to this region, it's most of the book has cultivated herbs, and it's so easy to grow so many of these herbs. So the, the book does describe how to grow um, these herbs like lemon balm or lemon verbena or lemon lemongrass. Uh, there's a certain kind of lemongrass that's just so flavorful, and I don't know why they don't, sell it at most Asian markets. I've never seen it for sale, but it's easy to grow, especially if you live like in Southern California or New Mexico. So anyway, I just wanted to say that um, you guys are lucky, and I, I, I know there's a ton of people growing out there, um, and we're envious over here on the East Coast, this, you know, really is what I what I feel. But... Um, Anyway, um, what was your question? I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. No, I'm glad you put that in there. And, yeah, we do have a lot of sources. We have a lot of little farmer's markets. People can get a lot of these things. But, um, yeah, I was asking about, you know, how, how is it over oh, the right. years yeah. that Eva has, has collected all this knowledge? Is it, you know, passed on knowledge from others? Is it a matter of just this adventure, some tasting out in the wild, uh, reading? Where, where does she uh, find out about all these? Well, I mean, one reason I wrote about Eva is that she's an insatiably curious. Like she, she listens to NPR till like 3 a.m. She's been asleep for two hours already, but it finally goes off around 3 a.m. But it's just it's it's broadcasted throughout throughout her little house, and she's she's constantly curious. So I think that you know a certain percentage of of especially the weeds and the foraged foods she's discovered, and she's selling them to the chef, saying, okay. You get Japanese knotweed, you put that on your menu, you know, you're going to be unique, and this is what other chefs are doing with it. On the other hand, I'd say a good 50% of these plants have been requests from chefs who've been traveling everywhere, and they'll say, I was in Italy, and I had this this herb called calamint, and, you know, it's, um, I'm trying to remember what the... The Latin term, the name is for that, but I, you know, they'll say, you know, I really, I really loved it, and I would love to, um, to, to try to um, have you grow it. Would you consider it? And always, she says yes. There was one chef that said, um, "I love anise hyssop. Why don't you grow anise hyssop?" And she said, "Well, I don't know. I never have." And she started to grow it, and now it's one of her most popular herbs. And uh, the chef has sort of paved the way for the other chefs to. You know, it's it's very easy. Once you get a hold of the herb and you cook with it once, then you start seeing all these other possibilities with it. So that was a very easy one to to take off. And so um, it's a very, you know, synergistic kind of relationship that she has with these chefs. It's almost like a mother-child relationship, um, yeah. the way that they are close to her and they 
I had one of them write an endorsement and said, it said, uh, I feel closer to her every time we talk. You know, like how many, how many people do you really say that about right. you know, in terms of your, your distributor or your wholesaler? I mean, like you would normally not really care about getting closer to your wholesaler, but <laughs> that's how it is with Eva. Yeah, just a very charming person with all her quirks and eccentricities. And do you have a website for the book, or is there a website for Eva's Farm? No, I don't think there's a website for Eva's Farm. There was, and then it went off. It's, it's, um, but there is um, my website, which half of it is about um, the book, and there are there is a blog, there are stories, and there's lots of photographs. So that's um, my name, ddemmons dot com. Um, and D-I-D-I-E-M-M-O-N-S dot com. And, um, and then the other half of the website is what I do. I teach inner city teens how to cook. So, um, you know, that might be interesting, too, for people, even though it's not really terrible, really closely related, except that when I, when I bring anything from Eva's garden to my classes, the, the class is just inevitably a huge hit. They love everything that I bring, even even when, you know, the plant has bugs and caterpillars and, you know, they just, people are entranced. It's just, uh, it's it's food they haven't seen before and they like the flavor. So it's really, it's really unusual. Well, I, I think just my experiences with plants and really working with them, although it's, it's kind of, it's rather limited, but... Um, there is something that goes on, <laughs> a, a sort of transformation when you really get into what this is, the, the essence of it. And so I, I, what I want to ask you is like somewhat aside from the strictly physical uh, nutritional value of eating and preparing food like this, do you feel there are um, emotional, spiritual sustenance elements involved with communing with these plants in this way? Well, yeah. I mean, I think for Eva, um, nature is her religion, and eco- ecology and sustainability, sustainability is her, her, her religion. Uh, I mean, I think she finds there's a certain amount of, um, you know, energy that she gets from from being out there. And, a lot, and, and pretty much everybody says that. That's a farmhand, and I totally get that, too. And I know that working with these herbs, there is almost something, um, you know, electrical about them. Um, I mean, first of all, they're hugely healthful. They, they, uh, anything green and leafy is going to be filled with antioxidants and lots of nutrients, and especially when they're grown in nutrient-rich soil. It's organic. So these are very, very, um, you know, um, healthful greens and herbs. Um, the volatile oils also, I mean, just the smell um, of these oils, uh, these herbs, it can uh, sort of transport you into onto another sort of uh, realm. For me, more than anything, I feel the stress leaving my body, um, the city stress that I've held and driving down there for the weekend, say, um, getting out of the car and and just getting away from all of that, the, the traffic and the, the stress, and starting to just tune into the plants and telling, having the plants tell me what what I should make for dinner. Um, 
I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. There's <laughs> there's something so transforming about it, and um, I don't know if it's spiritual, but for Eva, she would say yes, it's spiritual. Um, so. Well, yeah, I yeah, I use the word uh, communing. To me, it is like you have this communion with with the plants, and you can think of that in a religious, spiritual way or or not. But it's just like you are getting something from it it is getting something from you and that you're perpetuating it uh, in in the ecosystem and uh, just uh, i i see it as this synergy and this sort of uh, um kind of uh symbiotic relationship and it was kind of leads me to my next question which you sort of answered a bit there already but is uh how how did you physically feel when you were out there on the farm. I mean, you're saying the stress level obviously went down. Any other things about how you felt out there? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's like going to a, you know, a museum and and the artist sort of takes you away. Um, But, you know, I can just, I I can remember... You know, I was just there a week ago, so it's not hard to remember. But you know, I think for me, it's you know, again, it's the nature, it's the it's the it's the beauty of um, of both space that is natural and space that's been cultivated. I mean, it is beautiful to see a few rows of lovage and the way that the sun hits the leaves and it, it turns turns like luminescent. I mean, it's very so. In terms of how I feel, um, I think um, also there's a, a rush I get, and I'm usually walking around collecting herbs to make a meal, so I get overwhelmed and um, I get a rush because I'm walking by through so many different plants, and there's so much possibility, and, you know, it's I'm trying to think of an analogy, you know, it's, it's as if, you know, you're in a bookstore and and you're allowed to pick 200 you know books but every one of them you want you know so it's but it's it's also just it's just really fun and it's i you know i hate to say it in in my life but it's one of my greatest pleasures i mean i think that and just sitting down and watching a good movie i mean there's like <laughs> there's really few pleasures where i can feel um i mean that rejuvenates me more than a watching a movie does though um so well, I, I know I yeah. get a certain feeling uh, walking in, in the wilderness and just love that and being around plants and trees and all these things. And and uh, I, this would seem, Eva's farm would seem to have that as well as something else going on where things are being cultivated and there's this relationship going on between right. you and the plants. And that's just it, is that there you see all this effort that's been put into these beautiful, you know, rich fields. They look purple because they're so nutrient dense you know dark purple and you see these little lines of green little seedlings growing and and they're all being cultivated for a reason and you know that's because they've got it's it's a special farm because chefs know what they're doing and and uh, you know she grows a wild arugula called silvetta and you're like wondering why everybody's eating regular arugula when there's this wild arugula that's so much more delicious or that we're even buying greens in the supermarket for the in the first place because they're so much better when they're being grown and and she just 
doesn't really grow any romaine or red leaf or iceberg. You know, she only grows greens that have a lot of flavor, and um, most often they're they're herbs, and and most often too her salads are comprised of herbs and perhaps arugula or claytonia or um, you know, she's into these bitter chicories now. Um, so. It's a very complex salad, and she doesn't even use salad dressing. She thinks that's really uh, bastardizing. <laughs> this is a real. Um, um, she thinks that a dressing can really weigh a salad down. So we oh. sort of disagree there. I I think lightly dressing is 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 better than no dressing, but. <laughs> but yeah, I, I know I have eaten salads before that they're just so full of flavor. You're you almost like, well, I don't want to put anything on that might you know take away from that. And uh, yeah, I can, and I'm just sort of picturing these uh, salads with all these wonderful herbs in there. And, and yeah. there are some herbs that are so that are so kind of gentle and and light and mild, like like chervil, um, something we don't really see in the supermarket ever. And it's 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 almost like it's not like parsley, but it looks a little bit like parsley. But it's very anise, uh, an anise, an anise flavored um, herb. But but yet it's also so sweet and so delicate, and it's such a great salad green. Um, that that yeah, um, you know, it's something that really needs to be grown. Um, wouldn't really probably taste very good. Um, when I lived in France, it didn't have the flavor that that, that Eva's shrivel does because Eva's is so fresh. I'm severing it right right then and there so have you ever used any of these uh herbs in um in cocktails alcohol uh containing cocktails yeah um the chefs do uh, the chefs use a lot of these for um cocktails like sassafras is you know a root that um is something that i saw um used in a cocktail um but but no, I don't. I mean, we generally drink wine, and um, we use the herbs for the food. And but you know, a lot of people will try to, um, like the autumn olive berries. They, I, somebody made a, um, oh, what's it called? That really strong kind of vodka-like uh, grappa. They made a grappa out of um, out of these berries and used them to flavor to flavor the grappa. I couldn't taste the berries at all in the grappa. It was so it's like 150 proof or something. So but um yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of potential with these herbs to make, you know, you could there's this lemongrass. Oh my god, you we did actually take her lemongrass and we imbibed it in water the other day and we added um we added some um wine and a little bit of vodka to it and some sugar and it was um it was really intense and wonderful so yeah it sounds uh, sounds delightful um this is out the rabbit hole KUCI in Irvine Robert Larson here speaking with Dee Dee Emmons and we're talking about her book Wild Flavors One Chef's Transformative Year Cooking from Eva's Farm it um what uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, w- could you tell me about some uh, reactions uh, you've gotten from people tasting some of uh, your cooking with these wild flavors? Well, it's easy to get cocky because you know you're working with, you know from this amazing farm that's you know that grows a lot of different herbs and and you know grows its own food and you take it and you cook with it. 
And then everybody's like, oh, my God, you're the best chef ever. This is the best food I've ever had. And, <laughs> and you know, it's really easy to get, you know, to get a swelled head. But, you know, the truth is it's, it's hard to muck up, you know, food that, that's so fresh and organically grown. And um, California knows that already. You know, that's Alice Waters, you know, their food is so simple in so many ways. But on the other hand, you do kind of have to know how to um, cull the flavors or how to, you know, how to, how to bring them out and how to, how to complement them with other foods and certainly how to not, you know, so much about herbs is, is not cooking them um, because they lose their volatile oils the minute, that they hit the heat, but um, so you need to you need to be guided. I think you know by good books, unless you're a chef, um, and you probably you'll be fine. Um, so you so can you can have all of these. Y- yeah. Yes, you can have all of these really wonderful fresh organic herbs, but you know you have to have some knowledge too. And uh, as far yeah. as like combinations, and as you said, uh, how to cook or not cook them, and uh, all of that. So I mean, it, it's like you can be uh, led to the gold, but you need to know what to, right. To and do in with general, it. you don't want to like. Yeah, you know, you can mix thin-skinned herbs all you want. Thin-skinned meaning cilantro and parsley and basil and um, um, mint, but then when you get into the thicker-skinned herbs like thyme or rosemary or sage, they're so intense that you start mixing them and you just start mudding them. Um, so you can't mix very much. You could do a couple of thin-skinned with a thick-skinned, but maybe not a few thick-skinned together. Um, so that might be a good rule of thumb for people to know um, that it's really fine to to mix cilantro, parsley, and, I mean, there's many cuisines that um, combine many of these thin skin herbs all together and then chop them all up and, you know, use them as a garnish or put them in uh, pesto or whatever. Um, but uh, thick-skinned herbs generally have tons of flavor, and you've got to be careful with quantity and with mixing. Okay, and there are many other uh, tips in Didi's book, Wild Flavors, and 150 recipes that are just really interesting, and I am looking forward to trying at least a few of those, or getting my friends who are actual uh, chefs to whip something up for me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, one other thing I did want to make sure I, I talked about is it's not in the book. Well, it's mentioned on the book jacket, and that is your... Uh, work with uh, Haley House, I found that really uh, fascinating, and I always find such things inspiring. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that, what that is? Well, I was running a restaurant in um, a poor area of Boston, and um, a police officer came to, came up to me and said, would you like to teach kids cooking? I, I teach gang resistance in the public schools, and am looking to get them cooking. Um, and so I said, sure. And so that was about five years ago. And since then, we've really expanded the program. It's called Take Back the Kitchen, getting kids to sort of take back the kitchen, um, get involved with cooking again because um, there, is, there are so many issues right now with uh, obesity and diabetes and all these diet-related diseases. So I've gotten myself really involved with it, and now I'm working in the public schools, and I'm um, – um, what else am I doing? Um, 
I've been working for the Health Commission in Boston, and but mainly just teaching teens is what I love um, uh, because I love to cook, and I can really teach anybody how to cook because I I have that kind of um, enthusiasm for cooking. Um, but it took me maybe a year or so to really get comfortable. I think with a group of, group of teens that really are from a totally different world than what I'm from, and 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 after a year, I, you know, I, I I'm just totally at home and I feel like I'm more at home than anywhere else and the amount of appreciation and affection I get from these kids and they love to learn. Um, they love to hold a knife and learn how to chop. It's just, you know, it's it's the greatest thing for them. They love it and they love to be in a restaurant kitchen too. So, um, so it's, you're, it's a great thing. So you're working with these kids and, and uh, people uh, who've had uh, issues with uh, homelessness and uh, Incarceration that in, at the cafe? No, that's that's different. I mean, in general, I mean, I do do some of that training, but that's more the cafe. And the cafe, I ran for three years, and we we hire people from trans, you know, out of transition, we from homelessness, from incarceration, and so I've had experience with that. But after three years of running the cafe, I stepped away and started this program and have built it up so that it's mainly teens and teaching teens vocationally um, how to, um, you know, how to move from high school to a culinary school. So we're, we're doing a lot of that. Um, I am doing some training at the cafe still, but um, the cafe still definitely hires people in transition. It's a really wonderful place for, for people to be. I wish it could be bigger. Um, yeah. So. And but so yeah, working more with the kids now, and uh, there's uh, uh, something I, I just can imagine this, and in things I've seen reported elsewhere, is that you, you take these kids that maybe uh, just haven't had a lot of experiences with the situations where they can feel empowered, and this is like there is this sense of empowerment, and that they're learning this sort of it's almost a magical thing, this sort of alchemical process of mixing flavors together and having a creation that is is you know so uh, wonderful. Is that basically what you experience? Yes, I think it is the process of cooking that really takes some people under. You know, really, you know, sometimes it's it's often the most picky eater, the most difficult person that ends up being the one most affected by the class. But you know, once a uh, a young teen, thirteen year old girl was really um, tough, and I was always kind of acting out, and I was pulling a pizza out, and. She came with me, and I said, will you help me do this? I need your help. And so I pulled it out, and I said, so this is how you tell when the pizza is done. Um, and I showed her, and we peeked underneath the the pizza to see the the underside of the dough and when, it, when it's golden, then the pizza's done. And she just felt like that was just so cool. I could just feel that. And she started, she started to chop the pizza up into slices, and um, she did it really well, and she took it really seriously. And then the next class... As we were starting, I was listening to tell her, listening to her tell her friend that she's going to culinary school. She's like, "I'm, I'm going to be going to culinary <laughs> school," and I was like, "I'm so touched because, you know, it wasn't me really that that inspired that, but it was sort of this uh, cooking is so." Um, 
I don't know, palpable. It's so, it's, it's, it's a very visceral kind of experience because we all love to eat or, and we, we all, it's a, it's, it's a very empowering thing. So, yes, it's, it's the, how food comes to be is very fascinating when you really get kids involved and you really give them responsibility. So Yeah, and you just saw that one little gesture was, you know, there was a whole process going on, but that one gesture became this turning point, and you were like, wow, I was part of that. So we're yeah. pretty much out of time here, Didi. Uh, anything you want to leave us with as far as uh, your book, Wild Flavors, or anything else before we got to close out here in about 30 seconds? Yeah, um, I um I think it's really inspiring. We'll help people think about growing. The book will help people think about that if they aren't doing that. Um I was a reluctant grower and I'm still very much a beginner. But um I that's my aim is to help people get a little bit of the taste of what Eva's garden is like and that love for flavor. So I guess that's it. Okay, well thank you so much, Didi, for uh spending the time with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, again, the book is Wild Flavors, One Chef's Transformative Year, Cooking from Eva's Farm. Dee Dee Emmons, the author. And uh, yes, be talking to you again sometime, okay? Thanks, Robert. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Yes, again, uh, Wild Flavors, One Chef's Transformative Years, Cooking from Eva's Farm. Dee Dee Emmons, the author. You uh, want to check that out. Okay, so uh, we're pretty much out of time here. We've got... Um, Matt Kaplan coming up here in uh, just a few moments for you to present his usual Thursday early evening fair, and that is Counterspin and Planetary Radio. And I am Robert Larson. This show is out the rabbit hole. I will be talking to you next week. It's KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. And remember, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. Going to leave you with a little music from Tom Russell.